Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Today's episode, we have our resident almost doctor, Tegan Dobby. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about the medical system and the way it actually interacts from, with you. Now, Australia, we're very fortunate to have a very well-funded and, and uh, well-managed public health system. Other countries aren't so lucky. And we're going to be delving into what actually happens with public health, the cost of it, and how governments help pay for it. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. Today's City of Science is actually going to be not necessarily a City of Science, but a... Uh, a place in the United States, and Tegan has just removed my place, <laughs> so I can't see it. I thought you worked it out. Cerberus Hospital Group, in which is run out of Boston. And we're nice and prepared, as you can hear. Um, and the reason why I want to talk about this is um, um, Atul Gawande, who is a medical uh, doctor. as He's well a as surgeon. A surgeon, as well as a very famous public policy, medical policy expert, uh, who writes some fantastic articles for the New Yorker magazine, has done a really interesting and fascinating profile on hospitals there. And the approaches they're taking to cutting costs and helping streamline processes. Now, we often don't really think about the, the expense of hospitals because in Australia, the government pays for and helps run the public health system. So we don't actually get an insight to the costs that go behind it. But costs for hospitals and funding for hospitals is something that impacts everyone, even in a country like Australia, with a very well-funded and well-managed public health system. In comparison with the United States, who does not have such a system in place, the cost question becomes a really, really important challenge for them. So in the United States, undergoing fantastic innovations in actually managing and measuring cost, improving processes, and treating hospitals almost like businesses. And I don't just mean any sort of business. Some particular businesses, like the Cheesecake Factory, in example... Um, where they where they start treating ways to actually measure product success, measure the efficiency, improve the efficiency and the performance of the hospitals at the same time whilst ensuring better outcomes, just like you do at any major business that runs. So we're not talking about efficiency in the terms of cutting costs and cutting jobs. We're talking about efficiency in making better use of people's time and ensuring better outcomes for the patients so that when they leave, they've actually had a good experience as opposed to whatever gets the job done. Cerberus Hospital Group, in which is run out of Boston, have been working really hard on this problem and have adopted a really holistic process that actually evaluates and manages performance across the board and helps provide resources and support from other areas outside of town to really help improve and share knowledge between hospitals, keep standards really high, and make sure that the best quality is being delivered to patients at the same time as ensuring that it's done quickly without harming them by keeping them in hospital for longer. So that's the really fun part about this whole discussion. The shorter period of time you keep someone in hospital, the less money it costs, but also often the better it is for them. But at the same time, you want to make sure that when you send them out, you send them out in the best possible way so they don't come back too soon, which will end up costing you more. So when we think about this question, it's a win-win for both doctors, hospital runners, and governments. And it's a really interesting bit of research that is being done out, out, in, um, out in the United States. And Atul Gawande has really published some fantastic areas on this. So, Degan, hospitals are a place where people go to get better. Yes. But what are some of the Ost- risks? Ostensibly, yes. But there's a lot of risk actually associated with going to hospital in the first place. And I, and I, and I say this without trying to 
scare people off going to hospitals. But just to give you an idea about some of the things people are trying to manage when they run a hospital and sort out all the problems inside it. So run us through some of the risks and dangers that are present in hospital that doctors and nurses and hospital administrators have to minimise to keep patients healthy and safe. There are so many risks. Um, And uh, to be clear, a lot of these risks could certainly be um, ones that patients might face if they were at home, not being cared for in a hospital environment. They also... um, Uh, are usually outweighed by the risks of not coming into hospital to have their illness treated. Um, So we we try and make sure that every time that balance changes and it's less risky for them to go home than it is to be in hospital that they go home. Um, But obviously it's a balance that changes day by day. Um, To talk about some of the risks that patients commonly face in hospitals, one of the really common ones is hospital-acquired pneumonias. Hmm. So... um, Part of this is, is related to um, the diseases that patients have, which might leave them bed-bound. And if they're bed-bound, if they're lying flat, if they're unable to cough because they've had surgery, so it's quite painful to cough, they're not as able to breathe as deeply and clear the sputum that they would normally um, be able to clear, um, they're at a real risk for having those um, respiratory infections, which can make people very unwell, especially they've already been sick if they've already had surgery if they're already deconditioned yeah, so the, the problem with the hospitals isn't so much that people are likely to get sick from going to hospital they're otherwise healthy the mm. problem is that they're already at a weak and vulnerable state that's and right hospital magnifies problems that they would otherwise face in the real world mm. such as infection and when well, you've right. mentioned infection there and the other one that's really important to talk about is the rise of superbugs which has mm. a bit to do with hospitals and also the way we treat infections which is with antibiotics now in a lot of variety of hospitals you'll find that when they actually come to redoing a hospital Hospital administrators actually prefer to knock down and destroy the building as opposed to renovating it. And they want to do this to get rid of a source of infection, the the wards themselves that actually trap and store, especially in very old hospitals, all these infections. Now, these infections grow in these hospitals, adapt from patient to patient, and become superbugs. And since they live in an area that's highly treated with antibiotics and highly sterile all the time to make sure it's safe, they start to learn, adapt, and grow to the antibacterial stuff being used. And what we end up with is is virus, the bacteria, which is super resistant to our antibiotics. Mm, well, I guess bacteria sort of ascribe to the same evolutionary principles that, um, that other organisms do, and they do. They do develop um, resistance to antibiotics, and they are developing resistance quite quickly. Um, I think that um, you could speak to a lot of doctors who have very, very passionate opinions on this. And often a lot of the problem isn't necessarily the hospital um, and the patients being treated in the hospital with antibiotics, but people being treated in the community with antibiotics, mm. um, people being unnecessarily treated with antibiotics when they don't require it for For example, you know, I've got a cough and I've got the sniffles, I need some antibiotics. Oh, well, here you go, Uh, which is all too common. And also in the actual downstream, even before it reaches us, in cattle and produce, which are also dosed up on antibiotics for much the same reason, and then it's in the ecosystem as a whole. And these are all very dangerous. So the problem of antibiotics and the problem of vaccine resistance, not vaccine resistance, um, bacterial resistance, is not a problem associated specifically to hospitals, but again, a hospital serves as a magnifying lens for any of the problems that we see inside the wider environment. That's right. 
And there are some more simple um, problems that we see with hospital patients as well. Um, one of the, the big issues that hospitals face are reducing the risk of falls. Mm. Um, in a, a young person, a fall might just mean a bruise, but in an elderly patient, who are most of our patients in hospital, a fall can be catastrophic. It can completely um, destroy someone's life, a fall, because it can lead to broken bones and surgery, which are things that would otherwise be avoided. Um, this is a huge issue for people in hospitals because um, people are unwell. They're outside their normal environment where they might know where the toilet is. They might know where the chairs are and might know where the trip hazards and things like that are. Um, and additionally, because sometimes um, patients in hospital um, might have drugs on board and things like that that can make them a bit in a slightly altered conscious state, um, falls are a huge, huge risk. And it seems like something so simple um, compared to the, the complexities of antibiotic resistance. But it's something that can actually have a huge impact on them because if they're already in a low state from other, other, other impacts such as surgery or other incidents, and then they have a fall... You've only then added a further injury with further complications, which and is a further loss to their mental state. And in terms of actually... And it's a further stay in hospital with the associated risks of longer stays. And then you end up in a cycle, which is actually a downward spiral. And it's very challenging for doctors and patients, particularly the elderly, to get out of that. So this is one of the other challenges that people face in hospitals. It's not that you wouldn't face these problems at, at any other environment, and to be fair, especially in the elderly, it is a challenge that most elderly care facilities face incredibly as well. But a hospital, again, provides an opportunity to study as well some of the impacts of these and help devise ways to deal with these strategies and ensure that our patients go in and leave hospital in a way that actually means that they'll be doing okay and not returning there very quickly. And, and also having the um, economic efficiencies that um, are associated with that. So Tegan, have you, have you ever broken a bone? I, I had a stress fracture in my foot once that I sustained walking up the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. True story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that certainly adds a, a new uh, dimension to some uh, hard-earned travels and, and walking a couple of extra miles. Now, what's interesting about that, if you've gone to hospital, say in the UK, nearby, um, for, for that, you would have obviously undoubtedly had an x-ray. Mm. And um, x-rays as for your, and CAT scans are an interesting part of hospitals. Now, I'll touch on this in a bit more and explain why. But you obviously, you want to go get that checked out. So you would sure. immediately think about getting that x-ray. And the doctors would look at that and tell you, yes, Tegan, you have a stress factor here. You should probably put it in a cast or not put any pressure on this. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know the actual procedures for that. <laughs> yeah. But they will give you a prescribed recommendation based on what they can actually understand. So we talk about x-rays. We talk about things that help us see inside the skin and see what the bones actually happen mm. to the bone in the body. And that's really important. I cannot stress enough that CAT scans and x-rays provide a great insight into some conditions. The problem is that these can be over-prescribed. Uh, especially in areas where they're not regulated. Mm. So in the UK, for example, there is no regulation or requirements for um, people who are performing x-rays to have any professional accreditation or oversight. No way, I didn't know that. 
there's not a professional body that manages them, uh, and it's not compulsory. So there's no like teeth to the tiger. So what I can just rock up and just take some X-rays. You can, hey, right. whatever. So, so what that means is that there can be a lot of overuse of X-rays and a lot of damaging use of X-rays. For example, neonatal X-rays uh, and ne- X-rays for young children, infants. So, is yeah, particularly and- dangerous because they are at risk of their bodies as their cells are dividing quite rapidly and their bodies are growing, they're, they're babies. Any x-ray that we have is more likely to induce any radiation damage to them and for it to be more devastating. So obviously, we shouldn't be exposing anyone to large amounts of radiation. That's why we don't all live in nuclear reactors. I guess, yeah. And, and that's... Yeah, and, that's, that's true, right? Yeah. And, and x-rays are fine when you have one or two, and that's okay. The problem is, if you have a large amount of x-rays in a very short period of time, or have an x-ray that is for your entire body, especially if you're a baby. Think about it, your entire body is very small. So unless you set it up correctly, you can quite easily x-ray a baby's entire body. Whereas with, the, with an adult, we would just x-ray, for example, with Tegan, her ankle. Yeah. And the challenge there is actually making sure you do the right procedure and, and actually x-ray the right places. And I guess that the, the thing that I would say is that any time we do order an investigation, in my training, we're taught to, again, weigh up the risks and the benefits. And with any procedure we do, with any x-ray, even though we're not doing a, a, a surgical procedure per se, we're not um, invading the body, we're not cutting the skin or anything like that, um, even though it's a non-invasive procedure, there are always risks involved and you have to be really cognizant of those risks and think about how they're going to affect a person's life. And I guess... If there's no professional body and no um, designated training providers... It makes it, it makes it harder, not so much for the doctors who are saying that we need this x-ray, and the x-ray is often, often, often very valid and very required. It's more that the way in which it's then delivered is not necessarily in the most risk-reduced way. Mm. So x-rays are important and very valuable tool. It's just that you need to make sure that they're done in a way which minimises the risk and ensures that the outcome is both beneficial for the doctor who gets what they need to see out of it to help the patient and the patient to ensure that there's no unnecessary damage that's done or unnecessary risk that's taken. And so there's actually been moves now in the UK to, to, to regulate and try and restrain that because there's been a lot of abundance of this overscan and uh, improper scan is probably the better use of that where they've actually where babies have been scanned with full body scans when in fact all they need is a, an arm or a wrist or a chest x-ray. And, and that can have some damaging impacts for them. So they, they've gone under a lot of stringent procedures to clamp down on this because this is a high area of risk. In the United States, where it's not so much the regulation and the training, but it's the patients themselves who oh. often demand CAT scans and demand X-rays. So in the United States, with healthcare, the person who's involved is often paying specifically for that. And if you are paying for a service, you want to make sure you are getting the best possible service. You want to be really sure. Exactly. And so if your doctor says, look, you've got a broken leg, this is what we're going to do to fix it. If you don't want to, if you want to be really certain about it, you'll go, well, okay, well then give me an x-ray for that. Mm. Whereas, to prove it. I think from my perspective, the way I would I would treat a patient is always to make sure they're as informed as possible of all the risks that are involved. And I I wonder if there's less of an incentive um, in some other health systems to to be so clear about those risks, especially if there are financial um, incentives or if 
um, if there's a bit of a power imbalance mm. um, in so, terms of ordering and requesting the investigations. So you, the doctor might have that concerns and risk, but if I'm paying the doctor quite literally, the doctor doesn't really have much choice at the end of the day. If, he, if they want a CAT scan and an X-ray, I have to give it to them if they are paying me to do so. And it's, it's a difficult ethical well, area. Well, the thing is, I don't think you do. And I've never worked in, in the US, so, so I, I, I don't know the specifics... Of, of what their regulations are and and I can't say I have the highest opinion of the way that the US's health system is set up. I think it's a nightmare and I for that reason I, I would never be able to work there. I couldn't ethically do it. I think it's so problematic. I think bankrupting people um, for their health care is just unconscionable. But I think every doctor over there, they sign up to first do no harm. Mm. And really they no matter what they are getting paid, they do have a responsibility to first do no harm. And the question, so that might not be an individual case of harm for that person right now. So the doctor says, okay, look, I'll give you this thing. It's obviously not going to do any harm for you now. But it can be tying up a valuable resource for someone who does actually need this thing to be really critically done right now. And they're having to delay because this person here, is un- other person, is unsure that their leg is broken or not and wants a second opinion and the extra detail. Mm. So an individual doctor might be doing what is best for their patient, but the overall consistency of that and how it impacts the whole health system can be very difficult to manage. Like I said, I think I would I would absolutely struggle in the American healthcare system because I don't think it does allow you to do what's best for your patients. I, I think it would be incredibly challenging. And for that reason, I do have a lot of admiration for all the doctors who do work in that system because it would be absolutely agonising, absolutely agonising. And doctors there do a fantastic job at managing these ethical questions, these ethical management decisions for their patients and for the broader community, as well as doctors in the UK and Australia. So uh, areas of research in hospital management public policy touch on these very important areas and considerations. And... We need to make sure that we give credit and support the doctors and the hospital managers to actually make these good decisions that are best for both the patients individually, but also the health system as a whole. And do you know what's fascinating is that um, you don't actually realise until you're almost a doctor how much of the job is ethical issues, Um, but it really is. It really is. You'd be amazed. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Grange Point. Talk about the medical system, some of the ethical challenges in actually working in the medical system, and the ways we can improve efficiency and ensure better patient outcomes for the governments, the hospitals themselves, the doctors and the patients. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.